Let's pray. Christ, we've come to look upon you today. The fulfillment of God's promise, the mystery of God revealed, the declaration of God's love for his people. We pray that you'd help us to see it today. Give us eyes to see what is true. Stir up in us anticipation and longing for your presence in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. How are we doing? It's good to see you. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. And we're going we're gonna to be in a few places today, but that's a good spot to maybe park yourself for a moment. And I'm wondering, you know, Advent is, we've entered into Advent. If you're not familiar with the church calendar, Advent is a season every year, the weeks leading up to Christmas, where we think a lot about the incarnation, the coming of Christ, the fact that God became man in the form of Jesus. And it's meant to be a season that is supposed to be filled with a couple things. Uh, In particular, a sense of growing anticipation and a sense of longing. I'm curious, you don't have to answer me, you know, by raising hands or anything, but how many of you feel like you're doing a good job nine days into, you know, December now of like, I've got this growing sense of anticipation and this growing sense of longing for God? Uh, Or how many of us might say, I have a growing sense of anticipation that the list of things to do is too long and I can't wait for a few days off work and I'm just feeling a bit overwhelmed and, you know, we scurry and hurry about. And sometimes what that does is it causes us to miss what historically for the church, for the people of God, Advent has really been meant to be about. Really what Advent is, is a season where we're supposed to remember on this side of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection, living now in history on this side of his work, uh, we are supposed to, in a sense, re-enter with our brothers and sisters who lived prior to his coming, what it must have been like to long for and wait for God to come and move. What it must have been like during hundreds of years of silence between the prophets and the arrival of Jesus. What it must have been like to be David or Isaiah or what it must have been like to be Abraham and to think and to look forward to what God would do because the people of God have always throughout history, Old Testament and New, beginning of the world all the way to today, have always had a sense that something is wrong with the world and that God needs to do something about it and that we need him to do something about it. And those people, those saints who lived before the work of Christ looked for God to come and do something about sin and death. They felt a deep need for God to rescue them. And sometimes I think what happens for us is living on this side of, uh, you know, living in A.D. rather than B.C., right? Living on this side of Jesus' work rather than on that side of it often we lose a bit of a sense of anticipation and longing because we know what God has done. The mystery has been revealed as to what God would do. If the question was, God, we need you to do something. What are you gonna do? Well, we living now, would you say we know the answer to that question? Yes, we do. We know what God has done to save human beings from sin and death. But Advent is a season where we're meant to not forget what God has done in Christ, of course, but we are meant to begin to cultivate in these days leading up to the celebration of the incarnation that we call Christmas, the celebration of God become man. The thing that we're supposed to feel is what our ancestors felt is that sense of 
anticipation and growing expectation of God to move and to do something on our behalf that has radically changed the world forever. And so I think uh, in places like Colossians chapter two, which we just finished our study of the book of Colossians, God gives us a little hint as to how we might recapture a little bit of that sense of anticipation, a little bit of that sense of longing. And we find it in this phrase, the mystery of God, which is our theme over Advent now for the next several weeks. We're gonna investigate what does it mean when the scriptures talk about Christ as the mystery of God. Look with me at Colossians chapter two. I told you to go to, to Genesis, stay there. We'll put Colossians two on the screen because I just want to look at two verses and then I'm going to jump right over to Genesis here pretty quickly. So Colossians chapter two, here's Paul's words. You may remember him if you were with us for our study of this book, just the last preceding weeks. Paul says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which he then says is what? Which is Christ. In other words, that, that phrase may be new to you, this idea of the mystery of God. And like I said, we saw it three different times in the book of Colossians. And what Paul is getting at is he's saying, there has for all of human history been this question that people have had. If God is gonna do something about our problem, what's he gonna do? And it was a mystery what God would do. For ages and generations, Ephesians actually says, God kept hidden as a mystery, to some degree hidden, what he was going to do in order to deal with the problem of humanity. And when Christ came onto the scene, that mystery was revealed to us. The, the plan that God had to save people from sin and death was now known. And so Paul can say, you know what was kept for ages and generations a mystery. You now know it because you have seen the risen Christ. Do you follow that? That's what he means when he says the mystery of God. He's talking about the mystery of God's plan, but what he would do to save people from sin and death. And we have that revealed in Christ. But like any good mystery, I mean, how many of you have seen, uh, you have in your mind, I say, great mystery, and you think of a book or a, uh, a movie perhaps that you've seen that's a great mystery, right? And I'm guessing that in, in watching that and reading that, somewhere along the way, when the, when the mystery got revealed, like whatever the big reveal was in that movie, like he was dead the whole time, right? Whatever the big reveal was, sorry, spoiler uh, for some of you, Right, whatever that mystery was, now when you go back and watch it the second time, what really makes you kind of be in awe of the story that was told is how you see all the little hints, the breadcrumbs that were leading to that revelation that you never saw the first time through. But when you watch it, knowing what the revealed mystery is, now what do you see so clearly? You see all the things that were pointing to the fact that this, in fact, was the thing that was coming all along. And I, I just, maybe I missed it. I didn't see it. Or I didn't understand the significance of it the first time I saw it. And now I see it. What we want to do over the next couple of weeks is we want to show you throughout all of Scripture, throughout all of history, in fact, how God has been pointing to what he was going to do in the revelation of his mystery, of his plan to save humanity in Christ. We want to show you how it wasn't just uh, all of a sudden God decided the day before that he would send Jesus and that that would be how he would work out this plan, but that he had this plan from before the foundations of the world and that in that, in that he began to in a sense, drop breadcrumbs for us 
and show us things about his plan that now that we have seen Christ has come and he is the fulfillment of this plan, we see things in a new light that came before him. Things that before, like when we watched that good mystery, things that before we didn't see maybe as of great consequence and now that Christ has come, we see them in a new light. We see that something entirely different was intended in those moments. So we wanna look at three people who lived before Christ came and see how their lives and the story of their lives that God tells through their lives points us to the mystery of God revealed in Christ. So we're gonna look at three in particular. We're gonna look at Abraham, we're gonna look at David, and we're gonna look at Isaiah. Now, if you're not familiar with those characters, uh, you may be new to the Bible, or maybe you've been with it for a while, you just haven't encountered those characters yet, those men. Uh, Don't worry, we'll catch you up. We'll kind of fill you in on who these folks are so that you can be up to speed with us. So let's start. I wanna ask three questions essentially today. The first is a really easy one. Who is Abraham? We need to know that, right? So we'll ask, who is Abraham? Then I want to ask, what does God reveal about his mystery, his mystery revealed in Christ? What does he reveal through Abraham's life that points us to the ultimate revelation of his mystery in Christ? And then the last question I want to ask is a really simple one. What, what difference does it make? Right? What difference does what we see in Abraham's life living thousands of years ago, what difference does that make for you today, now, as a follower of Jesus or perhaps as someone exploring Christianity? And let me just throw this one in there as a little bonus item for you. Some of you right now are deciding whether or not uh, you should become a Christian. That's a question you're asking. And man, we're so glad you're here. This, this is the right place to be, to be asking those kinds of questions. My guess is if you're asking that question, you are probably, I hope, beginning to read the Bible. I mean, that's a great place to start, just beginning to read. What does the Bible say? What does it teach uh, about Jesus and who he was? And as you're doing that, I'll, I wanna give you something I was not given until I was in college, and I really wish someone had given it to me earlier. I did not know that the Bible, from beginning to end, was telling one story, and that Christ was at the center of that story, and that everything before him pointed to him and everything after him pointed back to him. I had no idea. I thought it was a collection of a bunch of random stories that kind of fit together loosely in some different ways. Uh, And so I would read, and I thought they were fascinating stories. I became a Christian when I was seven years old. No one ever explained to me until I had a really great pastor in college I was really thankful for who explained to me, Trent, this is all one story. You need to see how it all fits together. And it, it had never dawned on me before. So if you're exploring... Christianity, that's a good place to begin, to begin to understand that what you're reading is all one story and it centers on Jesus. And, and I hope that as you're seeing that, I'm gonna point you to a couple ways here that we might see that long before Christ ever lived, how the story is beginning to point to him in ways that perhaps before we, we didn't see. So let's, let's look at Abraham. So who is Abraham? If you've studied world religions at all, you probably have a sense of, you probably have heard the name Abraham because he is connected to three major world faiths. Do you know what they are? So Judaism, he's the, he is physically the father of Judaism. Uh, Christianity, because we look to him as a forerunner, uh, as someone who pointed towards Christ in some unique ways, which we're gonna talk about today, uh, who in Christ being Jewish, our faith stems from Judaism. And then Islam looks at Abraham as a prophet because Abraham didn't, he had, a couple sons. One's name was Ishmael. He became the father of the Arab people. uh, And uh, from among the Arab people comes the faith of Islam. So Islam looks at Abraham as a prophet. So you may be familiar with him just from that standpoint. So he's pretty revered in most world religious circles. He's He's a person who is looked to and held in high esteem. 
And in fact, throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old and New Testaments, we find that Abraham is held in high esteem for a number of reasons. But if we were to say, well, what is the kind of overarching message that we're meant to get about Abraham when we look at the scriptures, it's really this. It's actually not that he is this, uh, you know, stalwart man. The thing that we're meant to get as we look at Abraham is that he's actually not anyone of that much importance. Now, let me explain what I mean by that, because you might be thinking, well, wait, what, what do you mean? Here's what I mean. If you're following the story in, in the book of Genesis, and you're reading, you get to Genesis 6, and there's this flood. God floods the earth, and he spares Noah and his family. And then from them, we begin to get, uh, essentially, the story goes forward. And Genesis 6 through about Genesis chapter 11, essentially amount to a family tree. What we're seeing is Noah had these sons and those sons had these sons and these sons had those sons. And we're kind of getting a list of descendants with a few stories interjected from Genesis 6 to Genesis chapter 11. And what happens is in Genesis chapter 12, we get what might be considered like a record scratch kind of a moment, kind of like a screeching of the brakes sort of a moment. Because all of a sudden, we go from all this list of these people like uh, Jokton and Peleg, which are great baby name options. Let me just re-offer those to you if you're pregnant right now. I think Jokedon is, you know, is something you should really consider. And you get Peleg and you get Tara and you, get, you just get this list of all these people descending from Noah. And then all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, all of a sudden, Genesis chapter 12, we're going to read it here in a second. What we hear is, and God spoke to Abram and said, and all of a sudden you're like, wait, what? What just happened? Like there were all these, like, why him? Why not the 20 other people you just listed? We don't get this list of things about like, what you would expect is before God speaks to someone that you might get a list of all their great qualities as to why this is a person that God really loves. Here's a person that is so faithful and so good and so smart and so wise and so, you know, you fill in the blank with whatever you think would go there that God then spoke to them and said, I'm gonna choose you and I'm gonna do something through you that's gonna bless the entire world. It's gonna be amazing, but you're so faithful, you're the one I wanna choose. That's the exact opposite of the message we're meant to get when we read Genesis 12. Because the first thing that you see when we read it is that you're, you're just kind of floating along on this list of people being born and then a little bit about who they gave birth to and then what happened next. And all of a sudden you get this jolting, God just pl- jumps down and chooses one man. And the message of that is there was nothing special about Abraham that caused God to choose him. There was nothing unique. There's nothing wonderful. Now there's much to be said about Abraham and how he walks with God from this moment forward. But here's the thing. From Genesis 12, from the moment in verse one of chapter 12 that God speaks to Abraham. He's called Abram at that time. He changes his name later to Abraham. From the moment God speaks to him, the rest of the Bible traces his family heritage. Everything else from that moment forward becomes about his family. You want to talk about a lousy introduction to the rest of the story. All of a sudden, I mean, this is like if you were to go take a class on story writing, they would tell you, don't do it this way. Right? Unless you want to convey that this person is not as important as perhaps you might think he is. And that's exactly the point. There's nothing actually that special about Abraham. God chooses him and the story moves forward with him in God's design and in his plan. So that said now, 
Okay, that said, at a chronological level, what we're getting is that the story is moving forward about how God is going to create a group of people, a nation, in fact, and through that nation, he's going to send the Savior of the world. And so we see that as we're reading Genesis 12 and then 15 and so on and so forth, what we're getting is we're getting chronological advancement in the story. The timeline advances in the story that moves us towards Jesus. In order for Jesus to be born, he has to have a group of people to be born into. And in order for that to happen, God has to establish a nation. And so he does. At a chronological level, can you follow the story? Pretty basic, right? Yeah. But there's more going on here than just a a chronological advancement of the story. There's more that Abraham's life tells us about God's mysterious plan to save people from sin and death than we first realize. So look with me at Genesis chapter 12. Let's read the first three verses. They say this. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, now, like I said, at a chronological level, what we see is that God is making a promise to Abram. He picks him. He says, I want you to follow me and go where I show you to go. And I'm going to bless you and make your name great. And through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. That's the most important part right there. Through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. There's a hint in those verses that is pointing us to Jesus. And here's what it is. The first thing that we realize is that when Abram is told, I'm going to bless you in order to bless all the nations through you, that's, that's a promise to send a savior into the world that will save people from every nation. Now, here's what's also important about that, because it tells us something about how God's going to do that, that is going to continue to be the theme of all of Abraham's life. The first hint we get about what God is going to do in order to save people from this story is not just that it's going to be people from everywhere, that it's going to be global in scale, this salvation. The thing that we learn from that is that if God is going to save people from every nation, then it can't just be a group of people that he's going to save to whom he's going to give his rules. Later in the story, we'll call that the law that he gives. In other words, If he's going to save people from every nation, then he has to do it some way other than just giving a set of rules to a group of people that they will follow and then they will be saved because they have the rules and they then are saved by following the rules. If he's going to save people who never get the rules at all, can he do it through the rules? No. So the first hint we get that that God is going to do something about sin and death and that it's not going to involve rule following or merit is right here in Genesis 12. Now, this, now go with me because we're going to obviously stay on this train here. Genesis chapter 15, a few pages over. Here's the next thing that happens. So God begins to unfold the plan a little bit more. In chapter 15, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. 
Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, verse six of what we just read, again, to move the story forward chronologically, what we see is that God made a promise to bless Abraham, to bless Abram and to bless the nations through him. And then in Genesis 15, he comes and he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a great nation out of you. And of course, there's a problem with that. Abram is well beyond child rearing years. He's into his 80s and he's gonna be into his 90s before uh, his son is born, his, the son of the promise, Isaac, is born. Would you say those are a little beyond prime childbearing years? Absolutely, right? And so there's a problem that Abraham is pointing out and he's saying, I don't, I don't have any children. How is it that you exactly are gonna fulfill this promise to me? God walks him outside. He says, look at all the stars in the sky. If you can count those, now this is not in the days of cities and lights that drown out the stars, right? This is out in the wilderness and you can imagine the stars that are filling the sky. He says, if you can count those, that's how many descendants you'll have. So He's essentially saying, I'm, I'm gonna make a people out of you. I'm gonna make a nation out of you. And it's going to be expansive, right? But then he follows it with this odd saying in verse six that he didn't have to say to advance the chronology of the story. He could have just said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you children, don't worry, right? But he doesn't just say that. The scriptures make a point there to point out something very important to us. Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So here's another hint at how Abraham is pointing us forward to the revelation of God's mystery about how he's gonna answer this question. How are you going to deal with sin and death in the lives of human beings, God? What are you gonna do? And the, the thing that continues to be the theme in Abraham's life is that God is declaring through Abraham that he will not save people based upon their merit, but he will save them based upon faith. And what we're gonna find is that in the New Testament, Paul and others are gonna point back to Abraham again and again to say it wasn't that they were saved by keeping rules. It wasn't that they were saved by having a lot of merit or goodness of their own. They were saved, even Abraham, thousands of years before Christ came, was saved because he what? Believed God. In other words, here's the, here's the interesting thing that we're hearing there in Genesis 15, verse six. See, Abraham had obeyed God in Genesis 12. He'd followed him. He's commended for that, but he's never declared righteous for it. What is he declared righteous for? Believing. That's when he's declared righteous. And righteousness, this may be new news for some, righteousness is what is required for all of us to be right with God. You can't stand in the presence of a holy God without being declared righteous. So the question is, can you get righteousness from within or must it be given from without? And the message of Genesis 15, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, before Jesus ever enters the scene, is that righteousness can only be given from without. It can never be brought up from within. That's the first thing we see. It has to be gifted to us by God. It has to be a foreign righteousness, one that is not innate to us, but is put upon us and given to us. So then the question becomes, well, how do you acquire that? If it has to be given from without, how do I get it? And again, what we see in Genesis 15 is that we get it not by doing a lot of good things and then God goes, so I'll reward you with righteousness. He says, no, I will give or withhold righteousness based upon faith. Do you believe? Do you believe? Now the question was, what is the object of Abraham's faith? What's he believing in? Is it just that he's believing that God will keep his promise to give him a son? 
No, what he's believing is what God promised in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15. I will bless all the nations through you. I will send someone through you that will save the world. And Abraham's looking forward and not just believing that God's gonna give him a family. He's believing that God is gonna send a savior into the world through his, through his descendants. And Abraham is looking forward to that. And as he looks at it, that's the object of his faith. And he's saved, he's made righteous by that faith. Do you follow me? That's the message of Abraham's whole life is that he is declared righteous by faith and that has always been God's intention. In Romans chapter four, Paul touches on this very thing when he talks about Abram, he talks about Abraham, and he says he wasn't declared, he quotes Genesis 15 verse six, and he says he was not declared righteous because of anything that he did. In fact, if he had earned his righteousness, then God would owe it to him as a wage. Like when you go to work this week, do you earn your paycheck? Should your company pay you? Yes, because you earned that paycheck. And that's the point Paul is making is none of us earns righteousness. It's not possible. And God has been pointing to that reality from all the way back before Christ came, all the way back into Abraham. He's been pointing us to that reality from the very beginning. You can only be declared righteous for faith, never based upon merit. Now, again, I said that our aim is to try and stir up a sense of wonder and mystery uh, and a sense of anticipation and longing for God. And I, I hope and pray that when we begin to see that God has been pointing all along to this, these pieces that he's been revealing, he's been revealing all along, all along God's been revealing that his plan to save us was never based upon our works. It was always based upon faith always, that as you begin to see that, now you begin to read through the entire Bible, you begin to think through the story of humanity and you realize, wow, God has been at work pointing this out again and again and again because now you see this, you'll never unsee it, right? Have you ever seen something and you're like, I can't unsee that? Right? It's the, what's the old thing, like don't think about a pink elephant? Right? What did you all just think about? A pink elephant, right? If I say God has always been saving people by faith and it's clear throughout all the Old Testament and New Testament, you will pick up your Bible and you'll begin to read and you'll begin to see it everywhere. You'll begin to see and understand like, oh, this has always been what God is doing. And what that should do is infuse in us how awe-inspiring is it to think that our God is so loving, so gracious, and so powerfully in control of the events of history that he has been weaving together a story to save people by faith all along, and it's never been outside of his control. He's always worked He's always worked out the end that he desires. Is that amazing? It's amazing. Now, let's answer the, the last question here that we have for ourselves, and it's this. How does seeing this revelation about God's mystery affect us? Okay, so if we've learned a little bit about who Abraham was, and then we've seen that the thing that God is revealing about the mystery of God, like we saw in Colossians chapter two, the mystery of God, which is Christ. What was being revealed about that mystery through Abraham? The answer to that question is that salvation is by faith. It's not based upon merit. That's the thing that we're supposed to walk out of here with today, right? Then the question becomes, well, like if you're like me, you think to yourself, well, that's nice. I now maybe have a better tool for reading and understanding the entire Bible. But is there something that believing that I'm saved by faith 
is there a difference that that will make for me as I walk out of here today? Like when I go to lunch and sit down across from my friends, is there a difference it will make? And I want to offer you a couple of reasons why this makes all the difference in the world. So there's a thousand of them. I'm going to give you two, okay? So the first one is this. How does this revelation about God's mystery affect us? And the first answer to that question is that it gives us the ability to love people. It gives us the ability to love people. We talked about this a lot, but I, I, I have to bring it back to you again. Here's what I mean by that. When I say it gives us the ability to love people, I do mean that it should give us ability, an ability to love people in a way that those who don't believe in it shouldn't be able to love. Now, some of you, like, I, let me just commend you. If you are not a follower of Jesus and you are making great efforts to love people, I wanna say to you, that is commendable. It's remarkable, in fact, to me. And, and here's why. Because I think you are fighting an, an uphill battle to do that. You're, you are seeking to love people well, which again is so commendable, but you're, do, you're having to do it drawing from your own resources. You're having to do it drawing from the well of yourself to love people rather than drawing from another kind of well that doesn't have a bottom. And that's, I think, really challenging and really hard. And see, what God is doing is when he says, you're, you're saved by faith and not by your merit, not by your works, he's inviting us to draw from a different kind of well to enable us to love people. And I mean, when I say love people, I don't mean like kind of love people. I mean love your enemy kind of love. Love the person who hates you most in the world and actively seeks to harm you. I mean love the person who just annoys you to no end, right? Love the person who by all natural accounts you should hate, Love the person who does you wrong. Love the person who treats you with indifference. I'm talking about the kind of love that does not fade, does not waver, does not wash away, that is deeply committed. I'm talking about a different kind of love when I talk about giving us the ability to love people. And so the question I know that pops into your head is, well, how does believing that salvation is by faith, that God saves people by faith, how does that enable me to love? And here's the answer to that question. If you believe that any part of your standing before God is, is based upon your merit, I mean any part of it, even the tiniest little bit, if you believe even the tiniest little bit of your standing with God is based upon your merit or your goodness, you will utilize that to hold yourself in higher regard than others. You will. And you, you wanna know why I know you will? Because that's what every human being has done for all of history is we have divided, we have placed ourselves like, uh, this is my people, that is your people. And the reason my people are better than your people is because we follow these rules better. Oh no, the reason my people are better than your people is because we follow these rules better. The second you begin to believe that any part of your merit, your, any part of your standing before God is based upon your ability to do something. And if you do it well, in at all, you will always use that to hold yourself in higher esteem and higher regard than other people. But when you believe that you are saved not by merit, but by grace through faith, do you know what that does? It makes you look at everyone with love. I'm finding this to be true in increasing measure in my life. And it's one of my regular prayers is God, help me to see other people with your eyes of love for them. 
Help me to see it. The person who disregards me, who disdains me, who dismisses me, help me to see them with your eyes of love. And the only way that that is possible is when I know that my standing before God has nothing to do with my own goodness. And so when I look at that person who doesn't follow the rules or treats me poorly, all I see when I look at them is me. They're just like me. They're just like me. There's nothing of merit about me before God. There's nothing of merit about them before God. Do you see what I'm getting at? The only true tool to really love in the way that love must be accomplished is to believe that we are saved by faith, not by merit. That's what I mean when I say faith matters. It's not just a theological construct. It's not just a theological idea. It is actually a backbone for life that enables you to do something like love people in a way that you never dreamed possible. The second thing that faith enables us to do is it enables us to serve God in ways that we thought were impossible. It enables us to serve God in ways that we thought were impossible. So I'm, I'm curious, and you don't have to answer this, but I'm guessing that there have been points where God has asked you to do something really hard in your life. If you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, at some point, uh, if you're walking with him, this usually happens. He asks you to do something that's difficult. He asks you to do something that's hard. And the only way to do things that we perhaps once thought were impossible in terms of actually following God and obeying him, the only way to do that is to believe that your salvation is based on faith and not based upon your merit. And I'll explain to you why. It does a couple things. But let's look back at Abraham here because in Hebrews chapter 11, we get a little taste of this. In Hebrews chapter 11, which is a chapter of the Bible that has much to say about people who are commended for their faith, commended for doing really hard things in response to believing in God's goodness. And the way that Hebrews 11 talks is they were people who looked to take pleasure in God's world and in his kingdom and not in this world. Uh, And it says the world was not worthy of them. In Hebrews 11, Abraham is commended for doing what I think is the single hardest act anyone was asked to do throughout all of the Bible. And he was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac, the son of the promise that God had made to him in Genesis 15. I'll make a nation through you. In fact, in Genesis 17, Abram had made some bad decisions and had decided to try and accomplish God's work in a way that God did not intend him to. And that resulted in him having another son. His name was Ishmael. And God said, and Abram, when God came to him in, in Genesis 17, said, I'm gonna give you a son through Sarah, not in this other way that you went about it. And that's gonna be the son through whom I'm gonna do the work I promised you I would do. Now believe me, walk with me. Abraham's response is to say, why don't you just use Ishmael? Please, just use Ishmael. He's here, I love him. And God says, I'm gonna do good things for Ishmael, don't worry. But Isaac is the son. Isaac is the promise. Isaac is the one. Now walk with me. Then five, six chapters later, God says, he tests Abraham. He says, I want you to go sacrifice Isaac. I want you to go and sacrifice Isaac on the altar. And Abraham has to obey. He's asked to do a really hard thing. Listen to what Hebrews says about the kind of faith that was in Abraham. In uh, chapter 11, verse 17 and 18, it says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises 
was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So you get what he's saying there, right? He's saying Isaac was the promise. Like without Isaac, the promise is null and void. The, the very, and is God going to keep his promise or is he not going to keep his promise? And this is what it says Abraham believed. Verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So what's Hebrews telling us? It tells us that in this moment that Abraham is asked to do this immensely difficult thing, he doesn't just believe, well, God will use another son. God will give me somebody else. God will do it a different way. He says, no, God promised, and he chose Isaac. So what does he believe? That God is going to do what? Raise him from the dead. That's astounding faith, yes? See, again, the theme of of Abraham's life is faith. That God counts his faith as righteousness. Now, here's the thing that we learn. Because Abraham is asked to do a really hard thing. So a couple things. Number one, why is faith... Why is faith, Abraham was trained in faith. He was steeped in faith and enabled him to do these hard things. So why is faith a better motivator, a better mover of people than merit is? Okay, four answers to that question. Number one, faith fills you. Faith fills you. Faith has a way when it enters into a space of filling up that entire space. When faith enters into a heart, it may begin as a mustard seed, but it grows to a tree. Faith does not sit still. Faith has a way of doing that. So here's the thing. When we see, right, that something hard is asked of us, then what we find is that the faith that is needed to do it, faith is a better mover of me to do that hard thing because faith fills me up over time and space, enabling me to do things that I once was not able to do. But now being filled with faith, I am It fills the space of doubt and replaces it. Now, merit can't do that because the source of faith is God who is infinite. So he can cause faith to fill us, to fill every space of doubt and worry and move us to do hard things. But if I place my my weight upon merit, what's the source of that? Is it God or is it me? It's me. And am I infinite or am I finite? I'm finite. I'm good. Some of you knew that. That's good. Yes, absolutely. Right. I'm finite. And because I'm finite, I have a limited ability to draw upon. So is it better to do hard things, to draw upon an infinite God and the resource of faith, or is it better to draw upon a finite me and my limitations? I hope the answer is readily obvious. Now, the second thing that faith does to enable us to do really hard things is that faith leaves us in perpetual debt to God. Faith leaves us in perpetual debt to God. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter four when he talks about Abraham and wages versus faith. And the, the, and the issue is this, right? If God says, I'm saving you based upon your merit, then I only owe God as much as he paid me, right? So God owes me something, and then I do the work. He pays his debt to me, the, the salary, the wage he owes me, my salvation in this case, and if he pays that, then we're even. God and I are good. I did the work. I had the merit. He paid me. I owe him nothing else. And I could probably say he owes me nothing else. We're all square, even Stephen. Everybody good? But if I'm saved by faith and no merit whatsoever, then is there anything God can ever ask me to do to which the appropriate response that I would give him would be no. 
You see what I'm getting at? Faith leads you in perpetual debt to God because you owe him always for everything. And he owes you always nothing, ever. And you might think, well, that sounds terrible. It's actually the greatest thing in the world. It is beautiful and brilliant for God to always be able to call upon us and say, I've saved you by faith. Now serve me. And to be compelled to say, yes, that is right and good. To have my heart's wiring oriented in such a way that I say, yes, I always owe you everything. Glory and honor and praise and time and money and everything about my life is yours and belongs to you. It is sweet and good. And as counterintuitive as that may be, friends, let me just promise you, it is a sweet gift to have the gift to owe God always, to be in perpetual debt to him. The third thing, is that faith has a way of lengthening our perspective. And this enables us to do hard things because often what hard things do is they shrink down. When you get in those hard moments, don't you kind of shrink down and just get consumed by the moment? And your vision, your view is only about this big. But what faith does, rather than merit, is that it has a way of expanding our vision and our view to see whatever our current circumstances are through the lens of eternity. That's what faith does. It puts eternity in our hearts and causes us to be able to look and and expand our horizons beyond our immediate difficulty. And that is a recipe for being able to do a hard thing is to be able to see further down the road than we're able to see on our own. Immediately what faith does is it telescopes our vision and allows us to have a vision for God's kingdom coming in all its beauty and all its glory. And when we see God's kingdom in all its beauty and all its glory and Christ seated on his throne, does that enable us to do some hard things right now seeing that that day will come? That's exactly right. And unless you have eyes of faith, you can't see that. That's how faith helps us do hard things. The last thing that faith helps us, the last way that that faith helps us do hard things is that faith frees us. Here's what I mean by that. It doesn't just fill us, it also frees us. And this is counterintuitive, but if you wanna do hard things for God, when he calls you to do a hard thing and you know I need to do it, right? Then you need to believe that your standing before him does not actually rest upon whether or not you do them. No, no, you're thinking, well, wait a minute. If I believe that my standing before God rested upon doing that hard thing, then wouldn't I be more likely to do it? And the answer is no, because the weight of that will crush you. You can't bear up underneath that weight. But if you know that the weight of your standing before God does not rest upon your merit and your performance of doing that hard thing, it rests upon faith and faith alone, you will then have the freedom to do hard things knowing that your standing before God doesn't rest upon you doing that hard thing and therefore making you much more able to do it. Best analogy I got for this, forgive me, it's a sports analogy, okay? Is that, yeah, have you ever wondered why a guy in a basketball game can stand 15 feet from the basket with no one guarding him, shooting a free throw, and in, you know, when there's no pressure on, can make nine out of 10 or 10 out of 10, and the second the game's on the line, what happens? If the pressure's too much. The pressure's too much, right? Clang off the back of the, back, off the, back of the backboard, right? Something similar to that is this reality, Right? The weight of your standing before God doesn't rest upon you doing that hard thing. Therefore, you're much more likely to be able to do it. It's counterintuitive, I know, but it's the principle of faith. Now, the thing is, we come to the table. Servers, I'll invite you to come now, and we're gonna come to the table to partake of communion. The thing I want you to see as we come to the elements, we're coming to Christ's sacrifice, a, a representation of that sacrifice 
And just as Abraham had a forward-looking faith that looked to the fulfillment of God's promise to him to bless the nations through his descendants, and he looked down the halls of faith and saw that God would do something and send someone through his family that would save the world. Just as Abraham looked towards, forwards towards that, we look backwards towards it. And as we come to the incarnation, we see that part of the great mystery that, that fills us with a sense of longing and anticipation is that the very one that Abraham looked to is the same one we look to. The same one in whom he placed his faith is the one in whom we placed our faith because God has been telling the story from the very beginning and has been pointing it to us. And as we come to these elements, we're reminded, in fact, exactly what we've been talking about, that our salvation is not based upon our merit, but upon the merit of the one who sacrificed himself for us. That it's his blood, it's his body, given for us, that gives us the righteousness that we need to have relationship with God. And we invite you, those who are, who are in Christ, we invite you to this table, come, partake, delight in the work God has done for you and let him examine your life. Let his spirit examine you as you hold the elements. If you're not in Christ, our invitation to you is keep weighing this decision. Keep considering. He is inviting you in. The incarnation of his son, the birth of Jesus is his great invitation to you. He did not come as an attacking warrior. He came as a humble child so that you would know that you're invited in. You are invited to come to the cradle of that little one and to worship him as the King of kings and Lord of lords who did not come to slay you, but came to rescue you. And these elements are a demonstration that he was slain so that we would be rescued.